Okay, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you on the evening of February 5th, 2022, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And um, as promised, after I have been distracted for the past several weeks, both with uh, uh, ranting about my own quotidian dilemmas of uh, fighting faceless bureaucracies and trying to get tested for COVID-19 here in New York City, as well as with the um, crisis in Ukraine, which certainly demands our attention, but is also kind of distracting needed attention from other stories that similarly warrant attention. Uh, I am going to uh, get back to that um, underreported conflict that I've been saying I'm going to discuss a uh, war concerning a uh, obscure indigenous people in an obscure part of the world. And I'm trying to pronounce that word obscure, uh, you know, as if it were in quotation marks, because um, Obviously, that's a inherently subjective and somewhat problematic word. When I say obscure, of course, I'm talking about obscure to the outside world, not obscure to the actual people in question, of course. To the actual people in question, having to, uh, you know, fight Verizon and Con Edison is kind of an obscure conflict. <laughs> Although, unfortunately, they are facing um, far more serious conflicts in their own territory, as I will be discussing. And as evidence of how obscure they are, I'm going to note that uh, I don't, uh, in my entire apartment full of books, including, you know, lots of books about, you know, world conflicts and indigenous peoples and autonomy struggles around the world, because I obsessively accrue such books, I only have one that actually mentions the people in question, and it isn't even really about them. So really, I don't have one book in my entire collection of thousands of, you know, nonfiction and history books that treats the people in question with any degree of um, rigor or seriousness whatsoever. The one book I'm going to read from, just uh, to open things up a little bit, give it some uh, local atmosphere and historical context as best I can, is actually a uh, work of political biography, which was quite popular when it came out back in the 1970s. And I'm going, before I read the little passage which mentions the indigenous people in question, and I'm going to leave it to you, the listener, to see if you can figure out what book it is and what the actual historical episode being discussed actually was. But first, a a little disclaimer is that, you know, this indigenous people is uh, portrayed in the all-too-typical role of, you know, the local natives playing a uh, a bit part as helpers of the great white man who was the focus of the story, and are even portrayed in terms which, uh, even apart from that, beyond that, uh, are um, slightly ugly and racist by contemporary standards. So uh, with that disavowal, we are going to uh, treat the uh, the book that I'm going to be reading from itself as something of a um, cultural artifact and approaching it with a certain sense of criticism and distance. Nonetheless, it's an interesting and worthwhile book. And uh, again, the only book in my entire collection that even mentions the indigenous people we're going to be discussing tonight. See if you can figure out where we are, what... Um, 
historical episode is under discussion. Hopefully, it will uh, become clearer as I read. The Oyu River was reached in three days. He had allowed, he, the great hero of the book, rafts ordered by messengers sent ahead were ready. The mule train, escorted by an American officer and a group of the Chinese guards, went to Ked by land. The nurses made roofs of leaves to shield the rafts against the sun and a hospital shelter of grass matting for the invalids. As the convoy moved out the pole downstream toward the Chindwin River, an unspoken fear of their destination was in many minds. Could this be an appointment in Samara? Progress was too damn slow, as the hero wrote in his journal, and Stillwell kept them polling and pushing all night. Ominous rain showers fell the next day. A bomber flew over, passed upriver, circled and came back. Everyone cowered. Then, as they saw the red and blue markings of the RAF, broke into cheers and frantic waving. Circling in three low sweeps, the plane opened its bomb bays to drop food sacks on the beach. Half-naked, dark mountain people rushed from the jungle to seize the first drops before the raft contingent, howling with wrath, could reach the banks and collect the rest. The drop included a sack of medical supplies, enabling Colonel Williams to start quinine doses. This sudden recognition from outside of their plight raised hopes that rescue would be waiting at Homalin. I will interject parenthetically in the Burmese region of Sagaing. On his raft, Stillwell discoursed to his comrades of his plan for reconquest. If the United States provided planes and supplies, if the British could reorganize, if the Chinese would cooperate, we've got to get out first, one replied. Again, they pulled through the night. The rafts were hitting snags and breaking up, and Stillwell was dead beat, as he recorded in his journal. Hiking into Homaline from the river, they met a shock of disappointment. No one waiting for them. No food, no messages. The failure strained Stillwell's leadership thin. Murmurs of anger and criticism grew audible, and some members began to scheme for private survival. Preparing for the crossing of the Chindwin and a possible meeting with the enemy next day, Stillwell ordered an arms inspection. At the Chindwin, no Japanese were met, and the party crossed safely in dugouts and freight boats. Shan and Kachin bearers were now exchanged for dark, unkempt nagas and tankuls with a crest of hair down the middle of their shaved heads like Iroquois, and pierced ears holding cartridges or cigarettes or flowers. They were good-humored and friendly, drank rice beer, and could carry 50-pound loads on wooden backpacks. As the party dragged itself up a climb of 3,000 feet on May 14th, the rains came down heavily, almost cause for despair. 
but that day they were met by the help which had failed at Homaline in the person of a British district official named Sharp with a supply of live pigs for a roast dinner and the announcement that ponies, food, a doctor, whiskey, cigarettes, and 400 porters were just behind him. Quite a relief, Stillwell recorded in his journal mildly. Sharp was to guide this party into Imphal, in the Indian state of Manipur. The message to expect him had been enclosed in the lost RAF food sacks. Five more days of continued climbing followed, with the pace pushed to 15 and 16 miles a day, and on the downhill side to 17 and more, in a race against the monsoon. Preliminary rains had already begun, making the trails so slippery that men fell repeatedly, stumbling and cursing, and often had to climb sideways, edging their feet into the hill. But the party now had food, and the invalids could ride, except for one who was too ill with malaria to sit a pony and had to be carried in a sedan chair by shifts of bearers. The cream puffs and sissies, <laughs> both in quotes from the Hero's Journal, were doing better, and the unfaltering nurses sang Christian hymns and American popular songs. Quote, what a picture! Chinese soldiers, Burmese girls, Americans and limeys, all in the brook washing and shaving and soaking feet, end quote. A local headman in a brilliant red blanket presented Stillwell with a goat and welcoming nagas offered rice wine and chickens. Imphal was reached on May 20th. Through careful planning and relentless leadership, Stillwell had brought his party out without a single person missing, the only group, military or civilian, to reach India without loss of life. A reading from the book Stillwell and the American Experience in China, 1911-45, by uh, Barbara W. Tuckman. A bit of a hagiography about uh, Joe Stillwell, who was the commander of uh, U.S. forces in China in the Second World War. A relatively small force, which was backing up the uh, nationalist government of Chiang Kai-shek against the Japanese. And in this episode, it's May of 1942, and Stillwell was with a mixed force of U.S. and Chinese nationalist troops who had been sent into Burma to help um, back up the Brits as the Japanese prepared their invasion of that country, and ultimately the British forces there collapsed forcing Stillwell and his following, both military and civilian, to uh, undertake this forced march over the mountains into British-held India. And those mountains are precisely the uh, region of the world that we're going to be discussing on this podcast. This is the most remote part of India, and also the most remote part of Burma. These jungle-clad mountains right on the border between the two countries and the people we are going to be discussing are the Nagas, an indigenous or tribal, if you will, people who came to the aid of Stillwell's column of evacuees in May of 1942 and were subsequently denied self-determination in the post-war order and are still fighting for it today and facing very harsh repression with virtually no attention from 
the outside world. But simply because nobody else is doing it, I try to cover such conflicts on my website, countervortex.org. I'm going to uh, read a brief report that I wrote three weeks ago on recent developments. Hundreds in India's conflicted eastern state of Nagaland began a two-day cross-country march, January 10th, to protest the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, or AFSPA, which gives the Indian military broad power to use deadly force in areas where it is declared to be in effect. Some 200 set out from Dimapur, the state's largest city, and the march had swelled to over a thousand by the time it reached the state capital, Kohima, 75 kilometers away. The action was called in response to last month's massacre, that is to say, December 2021. Last month's massacre of 14 residents in the village of Oting, where army troops fired on what proved to be a truck filled with coal miners on their way home from work after their shift, not separatist guerrillas, as had apparently been suspected. The march was organized by the Global Naga Forum and the Naga Mothers Association, whose spokesperson Rosemary Zuvichu accused the Indian government of viewing the Naga people as, quote, the other. We still have this colonial attitude being shown us, she lamented. On December 20th, two weeks after the Oting massacre, Nagaland's assembly unanimously passed a resolution demanding repeal of the AFSPA. But the federal government, 10 days later, extended the act for another six months. And I believe what that means is extending its... um declaration as in force in the state of Nagaland, as opposed to the the law itself, which I don't believe has to be extended. It's a permanent law unless it's repealed, as is my understanding. The most significant development since then is uh, January 26th, which is India's Republic Day, marking the adoption of uh, the Indian Constitution in 1950, was boycotted by the uh, popular movement in the um, in the state of Nagaland, and people generally stayed home that day in protest of the state of internal colonization in Nagaland. Okay, now I'm going to uh, read from, uh, very briefly, to give a little background as to, uh, on the circumstances of the massacre back in December, I'm going to read from the, uh, the feature story, which we ran on Counter Vortex, by our correspondent in Northeast India, Nava Thakoria, who has done some really, really good work for us over the years. I've never met the guy, but I've had extensive online dealings with him. This part of India, I should point out, by the way, I couldn't go there even if I wanted to. This entire northeast corner of India um, is closed to outsiders. So I'll have more to say about this, more to say about the, uh, the geography of the region and how it is really cut off from the rest of India in many ways and cut off from, by government policy from the outside world. But from uh, Navathakoria's piece, which was entitled India, Outcry Against Special Powers After Nagaland Massacre, which ran on uh, Counter Vortex in December. On December 4th, army and paramilitary troops laid an ambush on a passing truck near the village of Oting in Mon district of 
the state of Nagaland. They apparently opened fire when the truck driver did not obey orders to stop. According to initial reports, the troops believed the truck was carrying a unit of one of the militant groups that have for generations waged an insurgency seeking independence for Nagaland. In fact, the truck was carrying coal miners returning from work. At least 14 were killed. The massacre sparked an immediate upsurge among the villagers of the area who vented their rage at the security forces. In this violence, nine more people were killed. Since the bloody incident, the state has seen continuing protests and strikes demanding repeal of India's 1958 Armed Forces Special Powers Act, AFSPA, which gives the military broad power to conduct raids and use deadly force without judicial review. The AFSPA is now in force in areas of four northeastern states, Nagaland, Assam, Manipur, and the Runachal Pradesh. It is in effect throughout the small state of Nagaland. Okay, now this uh, region of, of India, the northeast, has really not seen peace at all since Indian independence in 1947. And like I say, it's largely uh, off limits to outsiders, and it's geographically cut off from the rest of India by this very, very narrow corridor sandwiched in between Bangladesh to the south and Bhutan to the north. And it is made up of um, seven states, all cut off from, you know, central India by this very, very narrow corridor, which I believe at one point is only like uh, something like 20 miles across. And uh, those seven states are the uh, four just mentioned in Navathakoria's report, Nagaland, Assam, Manipur, and Arunachal Pradesh, plus the states of Mizoram, Meghalaya, Tripura, and Sikkim. Actually, that's eight states. <laughs> I think that uh, traditionally it's known as seven because Sikkim uh, was um, disputed the only one of these states which actually managed to uh, hold on to genuine independence and was only formally absorbed into India in uh, 1975. So actually it's eight states, including Sikkim. But uh, generally, this uh, entire region was never under the firm control of the British Raj. And what really was brought into India after independence uh, without the consent of the uh, the local populace. So all of these states have seen insurgencies which have been struggling either for autonomy or for outright independence almost continuously since 1947. And of these states, the most remote and the most uh, marginal is uh, Nagaland. And uh, what makes the, the Nagas so uh, interesting is that in addition to their uh, traditional culture being very, very much intact, their traditional indigenous culture being very much alive, is that they are also um, one of these uh, divided ethnicities. Their territory is bisected by an international border. They lie partly in India and partly in Burma. And this is made for a uh, very complicated political situation, uh, which has you know, exacerbated the challenges that they have faced in their struggle for self-determination like some other examples around the world that we could mention, most notoriously the Kurds, whose territory is you know, famously divided between uh, Turkey, Iraq, Syria, and Iran. 
the Imaziren or Berbers and the Kel Tamashek or Tuaregs in North Africa, divided between several national states, none of which really recognize their autonomy, and the, the Baluk, divided between Iran and Pakistan. And you could even say the, uh, the Quechua and the Aymara in South America, divided between Peru, Bolivia, and Chile, or for that matter, the Iroquois <laughs> here in New York State, who uh, were mentioned by Barbara Tuckman uh, by way of um, referencing their hairstyle, the famous, you know, Mohawk haircut, which was appropriated by the punks. Apparently the Nagas wear their hair that way too, or have traditionally done so. And the Iroquois are also divided between, uh, you know, upstate New York and um, the Canadian provinces of Quebec and Ontario. Now, I first became aware of the Nagas. I confess I had never even heard of them before until um, I was alerted to their existence through uh, Peter Lamborn Wilson, who uh, was the founder and um, leading personality in the uh, the radio show that I produced or co-produced for 20 years at uh, WBAI here in New York City. And Peter was alerted to them very amusingly. <laughs> he had actually, uh, you know, he had spent a lot of time in India in his youth as a sort of a, you know, spiritual seeker. And he had written some manifesto, which he signed as a member of the Naga Liberation Front as a joke. Because the Nagas, in addition to being this um, indigenous people in uh, the, this far northeast corner of India, which I had never heard of before, and which even Peter had been only vaguely aware of, uh, the Nagas are also the um, the serpent deities of Hindu tradition, which Peter sort of identified with. So after he wrote this essay and signed it off as a uh, member of the Naga Liberation Front, he received a um, a letter in the mail. This was pre-internet days uh, from a uh, a Naga a small Naga solidarity group based in Australia called Naga Vigil. I'm not sure if it's still around or not. Can't find it on the internet. And the uh, Naga Vigil representative who wrote Peter said, I saw that you um, signed, uh, you know, this manifesto as a, uh, as a representative of the Naga Liberation Front. Well, so am I. <laughs> and it turned out that there actually was a Naga Liberation Front. And uh, a correspondence began between uh, Peter and this uh, Naga Vigil group in Australia, which was sort of... Um, trying to get out the word about, uh, you know, the human rights abuses in Nagaland and to support the, uh, the struggle there as, you know, an example of a um, self-determination struggle based on a sort of a quasi-anarchist, although it didn't use that word, you know, model of indigenous autonomy akin to that of the Zapatistas in Mexico. All right, to run through a little bit of the history here. The Nagas apparently had really never been conquered. They had been, uh, you know, isolated up there in the mountains on what is now the, the border between India and Burma, running their own affairs without centralized authority in a, uh, you know, sort of a small village-based kind of society with their animist spirituality very much intact. The British made um, sort of an attempt to get them under control after the establishment of the British Raj in 1858, but uh, never really established very effective control of the region. And there were periodic uprisings, which really prevented the Brits from establishing their rule there. 
By this point, American missionaries had started to um, enter the territory, and they were actually discouraged by the British, who kind of just um, at first wanted to try to convert them to Anglicanism. And then uh, when they found that they were, you know, basically ungovernable, just wanted to like leave them alone in the jungle so they wouldn't cause trouble. But the uh, American missionaries started entering the territory, and um, particularly Baptists established a, a foothold there. And uh, a lot of the Nagas actually, ironically, it sounds very strange to us, but they, they, they embraced the Baptist faith as a means of, uh, you know, expressing their opposition to, uh, to British colonialism, because the Brits were trying to keep out the Americans, and uh, becoming Baptist was a way of rejecting the Brits. But um, it was, as you might imagine, given that you know, the missionaries didn't stay there very long, it ultimately turned into this sort of syncretistic manifestation of the of the Baptist Church, you know, kind of akin to the folk Catholicism, as it's called in Latin America, with a uh, a big element of the old animist religion, spirituality, uh, you know, still mixed in. Okay, then we jump forward to, uh, to 1947 and Indian independence, which really, uh, you know, uh, was the imperative for the Nagas to actually form some kind of a, uh, a unified national body to be able to assert their rights in the new order, because, you know, the, the Indians definitely wanted to get this territory under control and establish, you know, their national state. And that was when the Naga National Council was formed on uh, both sides of the border, apparently. But uh, instead, you know, they were not granted the kind of autonomy that they wanted, at least. There were negotiations going back and forth for quite a few years, and uh, the the international border between India and Burma was actually cut right through their territory. Their territory was was cut in half. And finally, after the negotiations weren't uh, weren't going anywhere, in uh, 1956, the Naga National Council formally declared independence and adopted a uh, constitution and declared the federal government of Nagaland. A passage from the uh, the constitution adopted in March 1956 by the federal government of Nagaland. Nagaland is a people's sovereign republic. Land belongs to the people, and it will remain so. There will be no land tax. Each Naga village is a republic in its own right. Each Naga family or tribe occupies its own distinct region and shall continue, as before, to exercise full authority over its own affairs, including land, community organization, social, and religious practices and customs, end quote. So, uh, you know, they actually did establish a, um, a parliament with elected representatives and so on, at least um, claiming to have sovereignty on, you know, both sides of the international border, on Burmese as well as Indian territory. But uh, written into the text of the Constitution was this, uh, you know, ethic of, uh, of local village self-rule, so just barely a state, shall we say. I'm also going to read briefly from a, uh, a manifesto, which was promulgated by um, T. Sakri, one of the leaders of the Naga National Council in this era. Among the Nagas, men and women have equal social status. We have no caste distinction, no high or lower class people. No family ever pays any tax. Forest and woodlands, rivers, belong to the people. We cultivate as much land as we need or desire, and there is no one to question our rights. We have no beggars. 
every family lives in its village in its own rights. It has no landlord to harass it and no revenue collectors to knock on its door, for the family is master of its own affairs. And, wonder of wonders, we have no jails. We do not arrest or ever imprison anyone. With those words, arrest and imprison, in quotes, as if they're, you know, alien concepts. Murder is very rare. We fear nobody, individually or collectively. But this Declaration of Independence is, uh, you know, brought the negotiations to an end and um, began the armed insurgency with the Naga National Council taking up arms. In 1958, the AFSPA was instated and remains in force today, the Armed Forces Special Powers Act. And so things went with this, you know, counterinsurgency war being waged for a generation thereafter with all sorts of um, repression and atrocities which received no attention from the outside world to speak of. Uh, finally, there was a peace pact in uh, 1975, the Shillong Accord, in which the Naga National Council agreed to lay down arms and seems to have um, dissolved after that. I'm not sure it's still around. Perhaps it's still around in name. But uh, there were factions which did not accept the peace accord and remained in arms. And that was when the government really took off the glove, so to speak. And, you know, as is all too often the case, you know, the peace accords actually meant an escalation of the war. And these uh, factions which remained in arms uh, became, you know, more radicalized in the face of, you know, this growing horrific repression. And uh, this is when Maoism began to uh, enter the picture. You know, I mean, it's the 1970s and Maoism was very popular in a lot of the uh, so-called third world. Oh, this is really the fourth world, I would argue, indigenous peoples who were marginalized even by the so-called third world government. This was the same period that uh, the Naxalites were established in um, central India, who are the, um, the Maoist insurgency, which actually continues even today to control a lot of territory and other underreported conflicts in uh, you know, uh, the remote areas of central India, which are known in India as the Red Corridor. But I think with the, you know, the, the Maoism that took hold in, um, in Nagaland was, again, it was a kind of a syncretistic Maoism, which really, you know, emphasized the notion of peasant struggle at the, um, at the local level, which, you know, characterized the incipient phases of the Chinese revolution, as opposed to, you know, the statist totalitarianism of, you know, Maoism in actual state power. And there were, uh, you know, various uh, guerrilla factions which uh, were waging an insurgency during this period, one of which was the, um, the Naga Liberation Front, apparently, the aforementioned. But uh, these various factions came together in 1980 to form the National Socialist Council of Nagaland, NSNC, which also attempted to uh, unite the struggle on either side of the border in both India and in Burma and continued the insurgency on into the, uh, into the 1980s. Now, here's where it gets really complicated, and I'm a little bit um, out of my depth talking about it. But just to briefly summarize what's happened in recent years, say over the past generation, is that the NSNC has itself, you know, become factionalized and broken down into, uh, you know, mutually hostile entities. 
which have been pitted against each other uh, in large part, again, by the fact that, you know, the uh, traditional territory of the Naga people is now divided by an international border. And, uh, you know, there were certain factions which were, you know, given sponsorship, so to speak, or, um, you know, by Burma, or at least allowed to operate out of Burmese territory as a staging ground for attacks in India. And India, meanwhile, attempted to uh, to open a dialogue, and one of the factions, which was operating on the Indian side of the border, actually, uh, you know, agreed to uh, some kind of a peace dialogue with the Indian government. But there wasn't any, uh, you know, peace accord that was really formalized. And I believe that, uh, you know, both of the principal factions, the NSNCK and the NSNCIM, with the... Uh, <clears throat> the K and the IM uh, standing for their respective leaders, the latter, the NSCIM being the one which actually did accept some kind of uh, a dialogue with the Indian government. I believe that both of them remain in arms in India. I'm pretty sure about that. Uh, there's less information available on what is happening on the Burmese side of the border. And obviously this is, uh, you know... Um, a question which takes on a, a great deal uh, more relevancy at the moment, given what's happening in Burma. Now, the um, the other indigenous peoples, which were mentioned by uh, Barbara Tuckman in her account of uh, Stilwell's forced march through this territory to escape from Japanese-occupied Burma in May of 1942, uh, were the Shan and the Kachin, and uh, they have been really been at the forefront of the, the armed resistance against the junta that seized power in Burma in the coup d'etat of almost exactly a year ago. In the, uh, the two Burmese states, which are, uh, you know, abut this area of, um, of northeastern India, Chin State and Sagaing region. I believe that Sagaing remains a kind of like a, uh, it's so remote that it, isn't, it hasn't become a state yet. It's still a sort of like a, a territory. I believe it's formally designated a region. And, uh, you know, Burma, or Myanmar, <clears throat> is now, uh, you know, clearly it's gone over the edge into, um, into civil war. I mean, it's absolutely disgraceful. Once again, another one of these situations where uh, the, the, the movement began a year ago, the, the democratic civil resistance movement began as, uh, you know, unarmed, taking to the streets in protest, using uh, tactics of civil disobedience, and uh, it received no support from the outside world and was met with absolutely horrific repression. And now the situation has escalated into, um, into civil war. And the, the general Burman, that is to say ethnic Burman, the majority people of the state of Burma or Myanmar, they have formed their own insurgent organization called the PDF, People's Defense Force, which um, is now making common cause with the indigenous people in Burma, such as Vashan and the Kachin and the Karen, who have been, uh, you know, in arms again, almost continuously since, uh, you know, independence in 1947, because, you know, again, they felt like they were denied self-determination and were never consulted about being absorbed into the state of Burma. And one very encouraging development in Burma is that the, um, the mainstream Bur ethnic Burman civil resistance, loyal to Aung San Suu Kyi, the former Democratic leader who is now under house arrest. You know, they uh, previously 
particularly during the period when Aung San Suu Kyi was in power, you know, they had sort of equivocated on um, autonomy for Burma's, you know, tribal peoples, if you will, and still sort of embraced a kind of a Burman ethnic nationalism. But now, you know, um, that they're having to make common cause with these ethnic insurgent armies against the junta, they have, you know, the uh, the underground parallel government, which has been established by the resistance is explicitly now embracing autonomy for indigenous peoples and a, you know, a federal model for uh, Burma rather than a centralized model, which is what these, um, these various indigenous ethnic armies have been calling for as, you know, the only acceptable alternative to outright independence for them. So, uh, it would be very interesting to find out what's going on with the Nagas on the, uh, on the Burmese side of the border now. You know, you hear a lot about the Shan and the Kachin and the Karen, but I haven't heard anything about the Nagas. But uh, there are voices in India which are, um, you know, concerned that the war in Burma could spill across the border. There was a um, an opinion piece in the in India's Deccan Herald on January 30th, warning of exactly this under the headline of Myanmar Nagaland Afspa and a ticking time bomb. That's the title. You can Google it. Okay. Um, obviously, I have huge gaps in my knowledge about this uh, situation. I am very, very eager to find out more. Uh, there, I'm going to mention four books, which seem to be the only books which um, are available, or as the case may be, not so available, about the struggle in Nagaland, two of which I have ordered. So uh, after they arrive in the mail, and I've had time to read them, Maybe we will revisit the struggle in Nagaland. Uh, and uh, one of them is The Naga Nation and Its Struggle Against Genocide, published by the IWGIA, the International Working Group on Indigenous Peoples in Copenhagen, in the year 1986. Of course, a lot has changed since then, but that'll be interesting background. And um, similarly, a book written um, even earlier, I believe uh, in the early 80s or maybe even the 70s, Actually, scratch that. A little bit of uh, Googling indicates that it was actually first published all the way back in 1962 by a, a British journalist by the name of Gavin Young, entitled The Nagas, An Unknown War. That one I was able to, uh, to order, and um, it's on its way, hopefully. Okay, two which I was not able to find. Not able to find either um, the text online or any website where I could buy a copy of it online. Uh, one was um, Nagaland Tears Behind the Blindfold by David Ward, another uh, British journalist who um, I believe in the 1970s actually um, slipped into Nagaland illegally to cover the struggle and um, was arrested and spent several months behind bars in India. And this book is actually something of a, a prison memoir of, uh, you know, his time in, um, in Nagaland. He was finally, um, at the interference of the British government, released from prison and um, expelled from the country, sent back to England. And finally, the last book, which I uh, was not able to find, either the text online or any website where I could purchase it, was where Peacekeepers Have Declared War, a report on violations of democratic rights by security forces and the impact of the Armed Special Forces Powers Act on civilian life 
in the Seven States of the Northeast, published by the National Campaign Committee Against Militarization and for Repeal of the Armed Forces Special Powers Act in 1997, a group which I believe is based in Delhi. But um, if you just want to get uh, minimally up to speed on what's been going on in this part of the world, I'm going to again point you to um, the piece that we read, the feature story that we ran on uh, our website, countervortex.org, by um, Nava Thakoria, our correspondent in Northeast India, based in the city of Gowati, in the state of Assam, which borders Nagaland on the west, entitled India. Outcry Against Special Powers After Nagaland Massacre. And a a second story, which I just posted um, this past week, Myanmar, Crises Spiral One Year After Coup, by Irwin Loy, which was a um, a reprint, actually, from uh, the New Humanitarian website, which does a lot of really, really good work covering these um, obscure conflicts which don't get nearly enough attention from the world media, particularly in Asia and Africa. And, you know, the, uh, the war in Burma or Myanmar, you know, itself, as uh, Irwin Loy writes in, in his piece, become, uh, you know, it's become what the world media is considering a tier two conflict, which has been, uh, you know, pushed off of the front pages, so to speak, by, um, by the crisis in Ukraine and the terrifying potential for, you know, real great power conflict in Europe for the first time since 1945. But meanwhile, you know, the situation in Burma is, as we say, escalating to civil war, with conflict zones spreading across the country, aerial bombardment of villages, rising hunger and deprivation, hundreds of thousands uprooted from their homes, to diminishing rather than growing media attention. And then, you know, Nagaland, forget about it, almost completely forgotten. And ironically, this is precisely because the Nagas have not been groomed or exploited by any of the great powers and therefore do not fit into any of the campist narratives of either the mainstream or alternative media. But the struggle of the Nagas does fit into the narrative, if you will, of indigenous people fighting for their land and autonomy. And I submit that that is a narrative or a paradigm or whatever word you want to use, which could use far more attention from the world media, and especially from the media which considers itself to be alternative or progressive, and is very much, you know, the raison d'etre of Counter Vortex. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. Repeal AFSPA. And rant on you next time.